All right, our scripture passage tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one, hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was driven to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, he What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. These are the words of our Lord. Um, look, tonight is a lot of fun because we get to do some, some real live Bible study tonight. So I want to encourage you to have your text open while we go through this passage. And if you, real live Bible study, unlike what we've been doing before, which has been the fake stuff. Um, yeah, bear with me. Um, but look, when we get to chapter four, this is a very big deal. We have reached a turning point in the book of Ephesians. All right. You can literally split the book of Ephesians in half. The first three chapters deal with Paul's exposition of these lofty, amazing ideas of what Jesus has done in his work on the cross and God's sort of plan, theologically speaking, for what he wants to do with the universe. Amazing exposition, lofty ideas. And for many of you, it's been frustrating you. Because you listen to kind of Paul go on and on and on with all these high-minded ideas, and you think to yourself, Paul, when are you going to give me something to do? (laughs) I mean, this is so impractical. All these kind of lofty ideas, I don't even understand half of them. When do we get something to do? Now, don't be fooled. The rest of the book, though, from chapters 4 through 6, are the practical applications that come from those ideas. So... Don't worry, I promise you, you'll get a belly full (laughs) of practical applications before we're done with this semester. But this is kind of the big deal, and I want you to notice this before we even start into tonight's topic. In Christianity, and many of you have heard me say this before, the order is everything. In Christianity, we are always trying to emphasize the fact that my being comes before my doing. In other words, the Bible is trying to establish what God has made in you before it tells you what to do. 
Now, for most of you, that's incredibly uninteresting. <laughs> so what does that matter? And I would say that it would matter to you if you start to look at any other world religion. I would submit to you tonight that every single other world religion reverses that process. In other words, if you want to know what it means to be involved in that particular religion, they give you what? A list of things to do. A series of practical considerations. And it is in the keeping of those things that you become a member of that religion. Christianity completely reverses that. It looks and says, we're going to go on the assumption here that there's nothing that you can do in order to earn your way into heaven. And as a matter of fact, it's only going to be because of God's initiation in you that you'll ever have a relationship with him. But on the basis of that truth, living in the light of that joy, now let's look at what it means to live that out. The order is everything in Christianity. Your being must precede your doing. And so now that we've done being for three chapters, now we're going to talk about doing in the light of all of that. Okay, so what are you expecting at this point? I really wish that I could kind of crawl inside your brains, especially those of you who have followed this series and thought to yourself, okay, here we go. Now we get to find out what it is that I'm really supposed to do, what I'm really supposed to be involved in. And I wonder what you would put first on your list. I mean, you, you, you're making up a religion, right? You got all these big lofty truths that you get out there, but now finally you get to sort of the brass tacks. What's the first thing you're going to come up with? Paul turns his attention at the beginning of chapter 4 to the topic of unity. Now let me ask you a question. Were you expecting that? <laughs> Does anybody look and think to themselves, I really just want to be what God wants me to be. Let's talk about unity. <laughs> Nobody mentions that. I think it is absolutely surprising for us to think, to understand that Paul would instantaneously go to that topic. But I also want to pitch at you that nothing could be more radical for where you are right now. Look, I want to unpack this, no surprise here, in three points. <laughs> First of all, we need to understand unity. That's the first thing. We need to embrace diversity. That's the second thing. And third, we need to grow into maturity. In many ways, the passage kind of outlines very nicely. Verses uh, 1 through 6 talk about unity. Verses 7 through 12 talk about diversity. And then finally, verses 13 through 16 talk about growing into maturity. All right, let's dive into this first of all. You need to understand unity, and it's not so obvious if you've never looked at it before. And in, in unpacking this, I want you to notice something interesting about what Paul does in the first few verses, especially in verses 4 through 6. Do you know, this is a very famous passage. Some of you probably heard it read before, where he dives in and says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, did you count how many those were? The ones in that list total the number seven. Now, for most of us, this is not very interesting, but I would suggest to you that if you were a Jewish person, that would suddenly be significant for you. Because for Jewish people, and we know this from all kinds of biblical literature, numbers mean more than just markers for counting. I'll be honest with you, there's few things that will help you understand things like the book of Revelation more than getting an idea of how a Jewish person understood 
numbers, right? Uh, there's a wonderful book that I had to read when I was in seminary by a guy named uh, Bullinger called In Scripture, uh, Numbers in Scripture, It's Supernatural Design and Spiritual Significance. Bullinger was kind of a, one of the, 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 the foundational understandings of this idea. To look at the Bible's understanding of numbers and realize that for a Jewish person, the number one is a primary symbol of unity. The number two is a symbol of differences or divisions. Three is symbolizes this idea of something that's solid or something that's substantial or the entire thing. Four is the number of the earth. We're talking about the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. In Revelation, the four angels uh, that are there. Um, six is the number of imperfection in the, in the Bible. Seven, to a Jewish person, was kind of a whole number. You kind of stopped counting somewhere around seven because it meant perfection. It meant completion. The same with the number 10. Number 12 actually stands for this idea of, of fullness. In other words, all the number that should be there. 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. Also, the number 40 is the number of generations, the idea of a generation. And a 1,000 is a number of complete completion, fullness therein. In other words, for a Jewish person, when you said things in certain numbers, you tended to group them in a way that would communicate another message. So when Paul comes in and starts talking about this fact that there are one of these things seven times, and he uses the word all four times, I think there's something subtle here, and I would not even dare to suggest something this weird had it not been for a great Bible teacher that uh, I got a chance to hear before he passed away a number of years ago. James Montgomery Boyce was one of the ones who suggested this to me. Because what he's saying is, is because, because he says all four times, Paul is trying to say that God is saying something to the created order, to the universe, to everything that there is. And what he's saying is, is our oneness, and because he says it seven times, means that you will never have a true creation until God is doing what he's doing in the unity of the church. Now, for some of you have been going, wait, wait, could you go back to the numbers thing? What are you talking about? All I wanted you to hear was that last sentence. I think what Paul is saying is, there is no order in the creation until there is unity among God's people. I think that's what he's saying by the numbers. Why? Because I think in Christianity, you have something utterly unique to the world religions. Once again, in world religions, we're talking about this. Paul is saying that if you have received the Spirit of God in being brought into fellowship with God's people, like we talked about in the last few weeks, the Spirit that you received at that moment is the exact same Spirit that was given to Jesus. Does that make sense? That is, if you are a Christian, consider yourself one of those, the Spirit you have is the one that Jesus had. In other words, being connected with Christ, and remember the doctrine that we talked about in union with Christ in the last couple weeks? Being connected to Him, and I don't think this is overstating the matter, bear with me, in some way kind of organically connects you to the very Trinity of God. That's what Paul is saying. <laughs> the Spirit that's in you was in Jesus, and Jesus is in this perfect tri-unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the three of them together eternally uh, 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 eternally living in that relationship. Now, again, that doesn't sound very interesting until you compare it to world religions. World religions typically fall off onto one of two sides. 
On the one hand, you have what we might call polytheistic religions. Don't let the word fool you there. It just means there's, there's lots of gods, right? There's, there's a multitude of gods. But of course, the problem with that kind of idea is that there's a cosmic instability because you really don't know what these gods are going to do with each other. They're always warring. They're always fighting. There's a conflict there. But on the other hand, you have the other side. World religions will fall off into a strict monotheism. Mono meaning one, that there's only one God. He's only thought of as being one. But of course, the problem with that is, what do you do about the idea of relationship? You see, relationship kind of has to be imported in later in a monotheistic religion, a strictly monotheistic religion. But here's the deal. Christianity is neither polytheistic nor strictly monotheistic. Christianity is three persons, one essence. Yes, God is one. There is a sense of his essential unity, but he's three persons. And what that means for Christianity is the idea of us being together is reflected in the very personality of God. <laughs> we talked about this, at, we were talking about this at freshman Bible study yesterday, freshman, if you'll remember. God relating to himself is the reason why we want to relate to each other. And you are created in the image of a God who's like that, says Christianity. And that's why you long to be meaningfully connected with people. Ultimately in marriage, uh, uh, less significantly in just our simple friendships. But what Paul is saying is, is you cannot relate to a God who is in community with himself perfectly and not be in community with each other. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. That's the point of the book of Ephesians, for goodness sakes. In other words, our relationships with each other is at the heart of what we are to be. Okay, do you like that? That was what? Four and a half minutes of theology. Just kind of washed past you, didn't it? <laughs> Can we get on to something else, please, you're thinking? That's all right. What does that mean? It means this. The Bible assumes that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you are going to be about the business of trying to figure out how to get along with other people. That's it. <laughs> The main business, the first thing out of Paul's mind after he has considered the wonderful theology of chapters one through three is we got to get on the same page. We have got to be on the same page. We've got to be together. It is the business. It's what God is concerned about. Um, I'll be honest with you. I feel like a lot of times the Christian subculture in which we live is way off base with what the Bible says we ought to be concerned about. We get all bent out of shape about politics, about personal piety, about all these things, and yet we miss what is vital to being the church, what is vital to being a Christian, and that is learning to get along, learning to deal with that other person. Okay, how does this work out? Well, it works out in at least two ways. There's kind of a macro idea and there's a micro idea, if I can. First of all, on a macro idea, the Bible is assuming that if you call yourself a Christian, there is something inside your heart that says that it is important for God's worldwide people to be unified. Paul says that we ought to be eager to maintain our unity. And I'll be honest with you, there have been a whole lot of attempts at building worldwide community to sort of get rid of, uh, uh, of the problem of denominations of the fact that there are so many different Christian denominations that the skeptic shrugs his shoulders and say, you people can't even agree yourselves on what the truth is. Why should, why should we believe in what you say? And there's been a lot of struggles of people saying, we need to learn to get through this. Now, why have those things worked? 
Because they haven't. The church has been splintering for about the last 200 years. Can I offer an idea of why I think that's the case? I think we have failed at doing unity because that unity has been unity for unity's sake. Uh, when I was in seminary, I, I was sitting in my um, little den area, the dorm that I lived in when I was in grad school, and I was by myself. Everybody was gone for the weekend. And I turned on the news and saw that the city of Los Angeles had descended into uh, uh, just a riotous mayhem. What had happened was, is there was some video that had been taken of the police uh, beating a young African man uh, by the name of Rodney King. And as they beat on him, what happened was, is they took all, and and this video kind of got spread to everybody, it made it on all the news, and the policeman who beat Rodney King went uh, to court. And it turns out that the court uh, exonerated the policeman after they beat Rodney King. Well, when that verdict came out, I mean, the city erupted. Riots all over, people burning things down, people looting through stores. So bad was it that the police actually got Rodney King to go on television, right? And to make a statement. And this is when Rodney King made his famous statement on television. He walks up and sort of saunders up to the microphone and the first words out of his mouth are, can't we all just get along? That's where that phrase came from, right? Rodney King, famous words. Can't we all just get along? In my opinion, that's what the Christian church has been doing for about 200 years. Can't we all just get along? But the truth is we don't have unity just because we decide we're going to be unified. I would say that's a short trip to frustration. No, no. Unity happens because we unified, are you ready? Ready? Around the truth. Around that sticky business of theology, of common confessions. In other words, we quit about 200 years ago doing the hard work of searching the scriptures, I would suggest. And when we stop that, the church splintered, and so we don't even understand unity. Okay, that's the macro consideration. Secondly, though, there's a micro consideration that we as individuals can wrestle with too. Because to be honest with you, I find it amazing how much we find ourselves, especially on this campus, judging others by what we might call sins of the flesh. You know, drinking, uh, you know, people that hook up, those kind of terrible folks, uh, bad language. In other words, most of those sins are sins of the body. They're sins of the flesh. They're outward sins. But can I tell you that the Bible seems to be far more concerned with the sins of your heart? In other words, the Bible is looking and saying, I want you to look inside. And I'll be honest, I find it somewhat tragically ironic that there are all kinds of people who can be deeply offended at the sight of someone who had too much to drink, but who, in response to that sight, will proceed to talk about that person in one of the most, some of the most ungracious ways and thereby destroying the unity that God calls you to have. Oh, irony of ironies. We're so quick to judge the sins of the body and not realizing that God longs for something in the heart. Look, y'all, I'm trying to say this, that your little squabbles that you're having with each other are serious. <laughs> They're a big deal. And having us forge through learning to get along is not a Christian option. Paul says it is intrinsic to the Trinity and therefore to what it means to be a Christian. Understanding unity. My other two points are much shorter. Secondly, not only do we need to understand unity, but we need to embrace diversity. Look at verses 7 through 12. What a great list of, of the diversity of Christ's body Paul gives to us, right? 
When I was at the University of Memphis, um, as the RUF guy there many moons ago, I was talking to a kid one time who had one of the most interesting things to say to me. I, I, I end up borrowing a sermon illustration from someone else, as I only do. Um, uh, the, 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 um, how did it go? It was about the word Christian. Oh, the word Christian literally translated means a little Christ. And I said, that's what God is trying to do, is to create among his people a bunch of little Christs. And it was really interesting. After I preached that sermon, somebody came up to me after RUF and was like, that rubs me the wrong way. Because it seems to me if we're all little Christ, wouldn't that squelch our diversity and the differences in our interest in life? In other words, is Christianity's point to sort of create, you know, kind of mindless automatons, little Jesus, mm, must do this. Is that where we're going to be? Thank you. But look, y'all, Paul is going to say to you, that is such a shallow understanding of Christianity. No, no, no. The truth is, Christianity teaches, and I'll, I'll introduce this before I try to prove it. Christianity teaches that you can't have real unity unless you have diversity. You can't even have it. But what it is, it's how you understand diversity that really makes the difference. Um, and then Paul goes on to explain what that diversity really means. Why is it that there are different gifts among Jesus' people? And then he all of a sudden starts to talk about Christ ascending on high and giving gifts to people. And you're like, what? What is he talking about? Okay, bear with me for a second. Um, how many of you gentlemen have ever been subjected to a Jane Austen film? Yes. I see that hand. <laughs> Me too. Um, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I actually like some of them. And to be honest with you, my favorite one is um, Sense and Sensibility. There I said it. I've just revealed to you my tender side, <laughs> the feminine inside of me. I love Sense and Sensibility. It's a great movie. At the very, very last scene of Sense and Sensibility, um, oh no, I forgot his name. Colonel Brandon. Is that the right one? The one who marries the younger sister at the end? Colonel who? I think it's Colonel Brandon. It's Colonel Brandon. Bam! Mm. Got her. My wife told me it was not right. Colonel Brandon, the one who plays the, the guy from, um, you know, from Die Hard. The bad guy from Die Hard. That's Colonel Brandon. No, I'm talking about Colonel Brandon. Thank you. <laughs> Colonel Brandon has just gotten married to the love of his life. He's a very wealthy man, Colonel, Colonel Brandon. And all of a sudden, he stands up in the wedding carriage before they all go driving away, and he pulls out this big bag of money. And he reaches into the bag, and he starts to throw it into the air. And all the children who are following the wedding um, carriage start scrambling on the ground to pick up the money. And you start to think, what is he doing? Well, it's actually a, a, an old tradition that in the olden days, what would happen was is when, when a monarch would ascend a throne, he would oftentimes send gifts out to the, to the countryside to show, I have finally taken the throne. And it was sort of their way of saying, I have been so blessed beyond measure that I want for you to rejoice with me and to share with me in my treasure. Does that make sense? So this is kind of cool. What Paul is saying is, is that yours and I's diversity, that's a terrible sentence, <laughs> our diversity, bear with me, I speak for a living. Um, our diversity is given to us in Jesus' way of saying, I want you to understand how overflowing I am with blessing. 
And when you begin to embrace that, you'll know what it's like to see the blessing that I have. You see Paul's reasoning? He says, look, if you want to live a life that is worthy, ironically, God has given us our diversity in the primary way in which we will nurture that unity. You see, in Christianity, diversity is not opposed to unity, but it is, in fact, necessary for our, universe, for our unity. You want to know how? It's because all of the gifts that are given, and did you notice that the listing that Paul gave us? Every one of those gifts are given for the purpose of service. They're all service gifts. In other words, everyone has a gift so that they can participate in the life of the church. In other words, there's a vital connection between having unity and serving. Ooh, I will bet you $5 <laughs> that if you grew up in a church that was constantly fighting with each other and disagreeing and bickering, I'll bet you it wasn't a serving church. I'll bet you it was a church that had gotten what we call ingrown. You stopped looking at the fact that there were people out there who need us. And that's all of a sudden. I bet you grew up in those churches. And they were probably very rarely involved in the lives of other people. Look, the best way to maintain unity in the bonds of peace is to get out of your head and into the life of another person. That's the trick. The more self-absorbed you are, the less unity there's going to be. I'll be honest with you, I think this is a great scale for your own friendships. Look, the vast majority of infighting that I see in sort of your friendship groups, and the professing Christians, mind you, happens, I think, when you are the most bored with your own lives. I am totally convinced of that. We get self-absorbed. And somewhere along the way, we just got tired of the fact that my needs were not getting met dog on it and your issues weren't being addressed. Look, y'all, unity only happens when you are released from the tyranny of your own selfishness by getting out into the life of another person. No wonder we're fighting so badly. That's how we embrace diversity. Secondly, and thirdly, and finally... That's how we grow up into unity. Verses 13 through 16, Paul is trying to encourage us to embrace maturity, right? And here's his definition. You know what his definition of maturity is? Don't be a child, but grow up. Grow up. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, Paul tells them that if you are a child, you are tossed around by every wind of doctrine. That's how you know you're a child, Right? Um, that's a nautical image. It's a nautical image of seasickness. Um, I wonder if you've ever been seasick. I'll be honest with you. Uh, if you're wondering whether you've been seasick, you have not been seasick. Uh, I have been seasick. Um, I get seasick thinking about a boat, to be quite frank with you. I'm, <laughs> when, we, when we went to Disney World after Thanksgiving, um, I had to go back in all of our photographs that we took of ourselves at Disney World and, and sort of... Um, uh, Photoshop out the, the sort of uh, seasickness patch that I had behind my ear <laughs> for the whole trip because I didn't want to get on the roller coasters and be seasick. <laughs> yes, I live a pitiful life. It's quite all right. Um, seasickness is a dreadful experience. It's disorientation, but it's disorientation from the inside. Even if you can see the land, your inner ear can't. It's terrible. All it can see is the back and the forth instability. But Paul is saying that immaturity is spiritual seasickness. Isn't that interesting? And look, for most of us, we just, we, just, we just got tired of it. And we gave up on Christianity because we got tired of the sort of inward spiritual seasickness. 
Look, what Paul says, though, is you can grow up, you can become mature, though, by finding the answer to real relationships. And you know what that is? There's this phrase right there, speaking the truth in love. You grow up by learning to speak the truth in love. Did you catch those two things? In other words, Paul is saying, first of all, that if you really want to understand what it means to be the people of God, you are going to have to be the kind of person and have these kinds of people in your life that can speak powerfully into your life and confront you on where you really are. Hey, look, y'all, you are your worst judge. You are your own worst judge. Uh, for most of us, and this is true for me, um, at any given moment in my life, I am either being way too easy on myself, way too easy on me, or I'm being way too hard on myself. I'll be frank with you, I don't even know me most of the time. Guess what your role is then? Your role in my life as a fellow Christian is to let me know how I come across to people. And guess what? We're all supposed to be that. We need to be truth tellers. Do you have people in your life that will do that for you? Because Paul says if you don't, you're probably immature. If you don't have people that will speak into your life. And you probably suffer from spiritual seasickness, constant instability. We need to be truth tellers. But secondly, though, notice it's supposed to be done in love. In other words, they have to be done not as a way of gaining advantage for yourself, but as a way to commit yourself to someone. Uh, when Luke, my youngest, was uh, very young, uh, two or three years old, he learned finally how to blow his nose. It's a big moment for you in parenting where you're like, oh, thank goodness he can blow his own nose. The problem was he had not yet learned to use a Kleenex. And so his nose blowing went like this. With his hand. <laughs> and he would do this on a regular basis. And then he would look at you and be like, Daddy. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, Luke, I want to be close to you. I really do, but your father is a, is a, is a seasick germaphobe, okay? I'm going to have to clean you up before I can get close to you. But you see, my needing to confront the ugliness in him was so that we could be close. Look, y'all, do not assume that unity among the body means peacefulness among the body. Oftentimes, it's not. Just because there is conflict between you and another person does not mean that there's not unity, and just because someone is confronting someone else doesn't mean that there's not unity. But here's my final question for you. Why are you confronting that person? I think there's kind of two people in this room. Some of you are truth people. I tell it like it is. I'm not putting up with that. Boom, and you kind of lay it out there. <laughs> Others of you are love people. You're like, can't we all just get along? Just easy, that's it. Shh. We're not gonna say anything. Let's be nice. And we all kind of tend towards one or the other direction. Paul is saying, you're supposed to be both. But the only reason why you should be a confronter of people is to get close to that person. This is so searching. When was the last time you actually confronted somebody on something they were doing? What was your real motive? Was it to let them have it? Or was it so that you could move towards them? To be close, to join with them, to be connected to them? That is huge. Folks, if you're confronting people in order to get rid of them from your life, you have a problem. <laughs> I'm utterly and completely convicted by this passage right now. I just want to let you know where I am. How do you do that? 
How can I be a person who is both loving and truth-telling at the same time? Well, to be honest with you, I think this is why it's so profound that in John chapter 1, John says that when Jesus came, do you remember what he was full of? <laughs> he was full of grace and truth. Look, y'all, in the person of Jesus Christ, you have on the cross the ultimate in confrontation, but at the same time, the ultimate in truth-telling. In other words, Jesus had to die a supreme act of love. No greater love has any man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. But he did that so that he could speak the truth to you. I would submit to you that only in the Christian cross of Jesus do you have an image of unity and diversity where we can really learn how to get along. Because there you have the ultimate in truth-telling and you have the ultimate in, loving, in, the lo in, in lovingness. Jesus cleans you up so that he can draw you to himself to draw all of us. And when he draws all men to himself, guess what? <laughs> we finally learn how to get along. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing with your friends right now? How are you getting along or not getting along? And if you claim to be a Christian, do you have that as the priority in your life as much as Paul does? Is it possible then if you don't that you might have missed something? Hmm, maybe that'll make you curious enough to look into it. As always, it's an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you invite us into considering you? If there is unity and joy in you, if there is truth-telling in you, but also love in you, then what we really need to do when we leave this place tonight is to find you. <laughs> um, we need to search the scriptures for you. We need to pray to you. We need to ask our roommate tonight when we get back to the dorms about you. So, so Lord Jesus, would you draw us into that? Would you assist us so that when we seek, we might find? And when we find something, we might find how to get along with each other as well. So, Lord Jesus, bless us with that, we pray. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.